So a little over a week ago, I was speaking at a conference in Boston. It's called the Men's Conference, the Men's Lectures. And it's kind of a historical Unitarian Universalist thing. It happens every year. And normally what it does is it gathers up a piece of our past to reflect upon. But this year being the 50th anniversary of the joining of the Unitarians and the Universalists into a single common denomination, we decided that this year we look forward. And it's very interesting, i got to tell you, being here and preaching at Wellsprings, because when I was speaking at this conference, that church where it was held, the first Unitarian Church of Boston, was gathered in, by the way, they, they say that in New England, they don't say formed, they don't say founded, they say gathered. We were gathered in 1630, they told me. 1630. But I give them credit because this year they did want to look forward. They wanted to use this anniversary to say what's up, what's coming next, and that's the reason... They invited me there to speak with them because Wellsprings is part of creating this Unitarian Universalist future. And knowing that this is a seed planting season, that this is a season of putting things in the ground that hopefully in time will grow into their fullness and into their flourishing. I'm going to take this message series, five parts starting today, to talk about what the faith of the future is going to look like. And first, I want to tell you a story, a story that is about the vibrancy very much of what that faith can be and what it can help people to do. It's a new version of a very, very old story I heard years ago. It's about uh, a fellow who was a portraiture artist. I mean, his job, his life, his calling was to paint the human form. Faces, particularly families, sometimes individuals as well, too. And he was renowned as an artist of great skill, great passion, great depth. Everyone wanted him to do their portrait because he rendered his subjects with insight and with compassion. And one particular thing about the way that he always rendered, formed the people that he was painting is they always had smiles on their faces. Some were big, bright, you know, toothy grins like this. And some were sort of thin smiles, but... In his artistic hands, the people always seem to be representing some vision of joy, contentment, satisfaction, and happiness. Now, this was in marked contrast to the man's of the artist himself, who, when he painted especially, but almost the entirety of his life, scowled. Give me a good scowl. Give me a good 12-year-old for scowl. You know, just, I mean, good one. Very good, Yeah. And, and, and he, he even sort of hunched himself over. He didn't, he didn't have physically have a particular issue, but while he worked, he wore this scowl and this almost hunched defensive posture towards his art. And yet at the same time, he gave life to these images, these forms of beings who were all manifesting a kind of happiness. The story of this man is that he had an upbringing of intense deprivation and cruelty and hardship. His father beat him regularly. And so it could be understood why it was that perhaps he had a scowl towards the world, sort of a taciturn person, didn't talk very much, and still yet was known for the deep quality and beauty of the work that he did. There was one time where a woman visited him in his studio and she wanted to commission him to do portraits of her family. And what she saw when she first arrived at the studio was all about, I mean, in a room like this big, all throughout, just like the art on the walls here, all on the walls were those portraits of the smiling and those happy people. And she ended up commissioning him to do work for her family. And she was so very pleased, so very pleased that he had done such beautiful work 
And she loved to look at the smiling faces of her family. That she became, as was known back in that age, a patron. A patron of this particular artist, supporting him, helping to bring him business. And theirs was a long and productive, decades-long partnership. And still, always when this man worked, she saw that scowl. Almost that kind of a frown. That kind of defensive posture. Wariness, suspicion. Don't come too close. And after they'd been working together for decades, one day she arrived at his studio and she saw that all the art, all the art on all the walls had been taken down. And her first thought was, I know he's becoming an aged man. Perhaps he died or maybe he's just retired. Maybe he just got so sick and tired of rendering joy without being able to experience joy. They just said, I'm done with it. I'm washing my hands. And while she was looking up at those bare and blank walls, she saw or she heard a door close behind her. And she wheeled around and she could see the back of the artist as he closed the door. And he turned to face her. And his posture was upright. And there were tears streaming down his face. And then he did something that the woman had never seen this artist, this master do before. He smiled. He smiled the broadest smile she believed she had ever seen on a person. And he went over to her and they embraced. The story he told her was that all those years when he was forming those images, those beautiful images of other people happy, he wasn't just about rendering an image. He wasn't just about forming an artwork on the page. He said, I grew up without any joy. I grew up without any happiness. I grew up without any smiles. All this time, what I have been doing, yeah, it was for them. But it was for me. What I have been doing is teaching myself painting after painting after painting, day after day after day, how to be happy. I have studied people who had it, and now I believe I have learned for myself. I was not just forming an image. I was forming the very nature of my own soul. Thoreau, our great Unitarian teacher over 150 years ago, said these words. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a particular statue and so to make a few, a very few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to be able to carve and to paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look and experience our life, which spiritually we can do to affect the very quality of the day. That is the highest of all our arts. What was true then is true now. To affect the quality of our day. That is the highest of all of our arts. And so it's not a past tense teaching. What Thoreau said and what this ancient painter taught us. This is all about the faith of the future. The faith of the future is formational, which is to say day by day, effort by effort, moment by moment, cultivating the gifts that have been given into our hands. 
and learning to give them back to life. The faith of the future is formational because the formational approach is the best understanding of living so that we are called to flourish, not just to survive, but to flourish in this life and give off and give back and delight in our gifts in our living. This invitation to share our gifts day by day and to heal our wounds day by day and to grow our souls day by day is the process by which we come into that place in which we know what it is to be whole people and to flourish, which has been with us all along. If we are cultivating it day in and day out and that way we can find that truly we can grow into the shape of our own heart's deepest desire and our own heart's deepest yearning. This daily invitation to form our lives, not just to have our lives happen to us, but to form our lives through our conscious, mindful choices. That, I believe, is and must be the faith of the future. Now, the good news is that part of our tradition, very much a part of our tradition, is about that exact teaching. It is part of our collective spiritual DNA as Unitarians and Universalists. And if we listen to it, it will help to create the future yet to be. And by I say our past, I'm not talking the last 50 years. Our faith has not thrived in the last 50 years, largely because we have lost that formational nature. We have become too much about just simply information. We're smart enough, right? We take in the right information. All our lives will be happy. All our lives will be healthy. But that didn't turn out to be true. And besides, there are better places to get information, to stay home on a Sunday morning, stay in your slippers and a bathrobe, get a cup of coffee, get online if what you want is just information. Now, this is an older part of our heritage. We won't end up sounding, I think, exactly like our ancestors, because formational faith is not about the past, not about saying, well, what did they do and let us copy it, but to saying, how can I have spiritual experience like Thoreau did, like Emerson did, like Clara Barton did when she founded the American Sanitary Commission and became the Red Cross. How can I live like that here, right now, in this place, in this time? And so I want to say inspired by them, especially the 19th century Unitarians and Universalists, what they saw more than anything else is that life is an invitation to grow a soul, to form our spiritual character day in and day out. They had a particular word for it, which sounds in our context a little weird. They called it self-culture, which sounds, I think, to a lot of our ears like selfish culture. Like they talked about the 70s was the me generation. That is not self-culture. To use the medical understanding of it, it's like, you know, you go a sore throat, you go to the doctor, they stick the thing, you gag, you down your throat. They culture that to see if you, in fact, you have strep throat. Now, this is a healthy version of that, but it's the same principle. It is using what is within us and putting it in the right context and right relationships so that we are culturing, growing our gifts and flourishing. Being back in Boston as I was, I really reflected on these words from the first president of the American Unitarian Association, William Ellery Channing, all the way back to the beginnings of our denomination, especially the Unitarian side in America. One of his most famous messages, most famous sermons in the the 1800s was a sermon that simply was called likeness to God. 
He said, true religion consists in proposing as our great end a growing likeness to the divine. This likeness to God belongs to our higher, our spiritual nature. This likeness has its foundation in the original and essential capacities of the mind. In proportion as these likenesses are unfolded by us by our rights and our vigorous exertion and effort, This likeness is extended and brightened all throughout our lives. In proportion as these qualities lie dormant, this likeness is obscured and does not live. Now, related to something that's a little bit more current like this, I'd say it's somewhat. Somewhat, but not entirely, like Lady Gaga was talking about. (laughs) Yes, we are born this way. In a way, I got to put a little amendment on what she said, because sometimes I I meet people who who are new to Unitarianism or Universalism. And the first thing they might learn about us is we reject the doctrine of original sin. We are not inherently to pray. That is a wonderful, liberating teaching for so many people. However, the step, the next step that people can take it to, which is actually incorrect, is kind of a "Mm, I'm okay. You're okay. Don't need to do anything, don't need to cultivate anything, don't need to grow anything. I'm just absolutely fine the way that I am, which is a kind of actual spiritual laziness. So it's actually, it's neither of those choices. So to amend what Lady Gaga said, yes, we are born in this way, in this way, with the potential for all of us to grow and flourish and be whole people. I can think of no more empowering message for us to share with the world. And it is a Unitarian and it is a Universalist message, which is that all of us are born and called to flourish. All of us. No one left out. Now, the great thing about this older Unitarian and Universalist teaching is that it confirms some of the most recent, most up-to-date understandings of what it is to be a human being and what it is to grow as a human being. If you've been around for a while, you may have heard me talk about the name Dr. Andrew Newberg before. Have you heard me talk about that, a few of you? Andrew Newberg um, is what they now call a neurotheologian. Basically, he's a neuroscientist who studies human beings who have cultivated their spiritual practices, all kinds of traditions, Eastern and Western, contemplative and otherwise. And what Dr. Newberg has found is that some of the most profound ways that human beings grow and grow in ways that just don't, cu- that just don't cultivate our individual gifts, but share them with all of life. The words that we talk about is wholeness. The words that we talk about as a sense of being full human beings and also at the same time being human beings who give ourselves to other human beings. That we are hardwired for this kind of spiritual growth and spiritual development. And it is about development and formation. One of my favorite stories of the research that he shared, I absolutely love and it's easy to relate to you. He has a group of Benedictine nuns. Perhaps maybe actually they're Carmelite nuns who are doing their largely silent centering prayer practice. And then he has a group of Buddhist monks who are doing their mindfulness practice, both different contemplative practices, both with different traditions, with different understandings and experiences of God and the divine. For those who most fully cultivate their practice, their brains from both those traditions look exactly the same. 
the part of the brain that's associated with aggression, with anxiety, with fear, with fight, with flight. Sometimes what's called the snake brain, the amygdala, the actual word. That part of the brain is not very active from practitioners from both those traditions. But the parts of the brain that are associated with empathy, with compassion, with joy, with belonging, with the peace that surpasses all conceptual understanding, these parts of the brain are engaged. Not just engaged, but cultivated and developed. We can and we will still continue to have different names for that original likeness. But it is such good news that that is an original likeness planted inside each and every one of us, waiting for us to choose to form and to develop that which is already ours. This kind of formational faith is a trusting faith. It is a choosing faith, empowering us to do the daily things that we feel called to so that we will grow and change and develop into the people that we really hope to be. Awakening, flourishing, whole, so many different words for it. It is also to overcome something that is very present in our time, even though it was said over 150 years ago. It was Emerson, one of our great sages, who said that many people... They are always getting ready to live and somehow never living. Always getting ready to live and somehow never quite living. I call this someday syndrome. You know, someday when I have the job that I want or I can get rid of the crappy job I have right now or someday when we have kids or some days when the kid moves out. Or someday when I get the relationship that I want, or someday when the relationship that I'm in ends. Someday, someday, someday. And yet through all those someday's, it never somehow quite arrives. This someday syndrome, which is always putting our lives out in front of us and never occupying them here and now. Always getting ready to live, making preparations, but never quite making the choice to say, this day, not someday. Delaying until that perfect time when the time is, quote unquote, right. And waiting, waiting, waiting. Or there's the opposite. Instead of waiting, it is believing every new fad or every new spiritual fetish that comes onto the marketplace. They are almost limitless in this day and age and saying, oh, goody, that's it. This is what's going to make me whole. This is what is going to make me complete. It's the hope for instant in the microwave, one minute transformation. Just like making the popcorn. Oh, goody, this is mine right now. This is what I've been waiting for. Everything that I've wanted is going to be given to me in this one workshop, this one day, this one message. It's about transformation and the yearning for transformation. Let me say, folks, I get it. I get transformation. I get transformation. I understand. I do. I understand the yearning for it. I mean, I am someone who from their early to mid-teens, I've shared this with you before, all the way up through the mid-30s, if I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about drinking. I get what it's like to live that kind of life of someday and someday and someday and never feeling whole and never feeling good about myself and never feeling a real deep, true, authentic compassion for myself or for other people, even though I wanted to act that way, even though I felt called that way. I know about deep change and I know many of you know about deep change as well, too. 
But in this day and age, even the hope for transformation can be turned into just another addiction. Another thing that can be bottled and given to you. Or you can take in and say, aha, now I have the secret to everything. Transformation only becomes really true in our lives, not at that moment of inspiration, as real as those moments are. But those are just the seeds. Because transformation or transformative moments of insight untethered to a regular practice, regular choice to be formed every day, Ultimately, those are just the seeds for our frustration saying, eh, I guess another thing doesn't work and become more jaded and more cynical and say, this is all just a lie. Even the hope for transformation could be turned into just another addiction. I remember a few years ago, I had the real uh, pleasure of being in the company with someone who has run amazing retreats over the last 30 years. Someone who introduced many Americans, many people in this country to the very idea of retreat and has helped to change lives. But I asked this person, I said, what do you do about that particular person who keeps coming back and coming back and coming back year after year? And, you know, they arrive. Excuse me one second. They arrive with all of the highest hopes. They arrive. You can just see them. This time is going to be different. This time I'm going to get the practice that's going to make all the difference for me. And, you know, you hear back from them uh, 24 hours or 48 hours after the workshop has ended. And they are just on top of the world. They're like Leo and the top of the Titanic, you know, I'm king of the world. They feel it all. Everything is really, really good for them. And then a couple more days go by and a couple more weeks go by and you see them back at the same workshop the next year. And they're just as unhappy as they were before. I said, what do you say about those kind of folks? And this person smiled and said, ah, retreat junkies, we call them. Those are the people who are looking for the instant transformation. But transformation only does happen one day at a time by the daily and empowering life-giving choices and practices wherein our innermost lives are formed. Forming is the seed. It is transformation. That is the harvest. And it takes time. It takes time and it brings to mind and heart exactly what some traditional forms of faith mean when they talk about stewardship. Stewardship is very often sometimes about, you know, how do we choose to spend our money or how do we choose to treat the earth? And it's both those things, but it's even more. Stewardship is really about this. How do we choose to cultivate, share the gifts that are given into our hands? It is what Channing was talking about, the vigorous exertion, the daily choices by which we extend and brighten that innate divine likeness of our minds that we were born with. This daily commitment to make good on the gifts that this mysterious and graceful universe has somehow planted within us, and then we choose to make good on that investment. This is an everyday kind of universalism because it is a part of every single person. That affects change, potentially even transformation, allows us and invites us to heal, and encourages us perhaps to know that wholeness that we were born with. This is especially true in our time and in our place and in a place like Chester County. As many of you perhaps know, Chester County is the most affluent suburb, excuse me, the most affluent county in all of Pennsylvania. And nationwide, we are the 24th most wealthy county of any American county. 
It means if we look at the map of the whole world, that where we are right here and right now is one of the most wealthy places that has ever been in human history. It doesn't mean all of us are individually rich. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a culture that is an affluent culture that has the markings and the makings of money and affluence all around it. I think of these words, the challenges, certainly many good things about affluence. But the challenges of affluence, starting with this simple sentence from an Israeli um, sociologist named Avner Offer, who wrote in a way that most sociologists don't, which is to say it's really easy to understand him. One simple sentence starting out his work, simply called affluence. He said, affluence breeds impatience and impatience undermines well-being. To choose a formative faith is to learn to go against the grain of a culture in which affluence can breed impatience. It is to open ourselves up to the truest, deepest kind of freedom, which is an ethic not just of responsibility for our own growth, but an ethic of taking time and place and giving ourselves space to cultivate compassion for other people as well. A forming faith gives us back the gift of time when the world always wants to seem to take it away. This world that is always saying to us, by the way, someday, 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 because right now you got to be producing right now. There's really important stuff for you to do. So delay all that other stuff. And by the way, unless you are productive right now, we probably think you're a little bit worthless. And some people internalize that sense of worthlessness that unless they are producing something in this moment that is tangible, they can say here like Lisa Simpson. On The Simpsons, when school is on strike and she follows her mom around saying, grade me, grade me, tell me I'm good enough. To give us back the gift of time. To not let the world master us because the world is not slowing down. It is only and only and only going to get faster. To avoid just being swept up mindlessly and to be the kind of person who can step back. And step away and also settle down just like that little blue piece of liquid over there has done. And take a breath and develop compassion. And also, by the way, to say no to the kind of very damaging faiths that are responding to the complexity of our world. They go by many names, but essentially they are all varieties of fundamentalism. They say the world is a static place. Nothing changes. Certain people are sinners. Certain people are saved. And very often the mark of belonging to a fundamentalist faith is how many other people you can get on your side or how many other people you can tell they are on the wrong side. Not choosing a static faith means that we accept the dynamism, the creativity, and also sometimes the whirlwind nature of our existence. And then, not just to be swept up in it, but to ask ourselves, how can we use this nature of change, this change that is always here, to encourage us never grow bored, to invite ourselves always something new to learn, to say revelation is this day, this time, this place, and knowing that the invitation to awakening is right here and right now, as true as it's ever been for any person to come before us. This is faith in the formative power of our choices that allow us to flourish. This call to live a faith of formation 
ultimately it reveals to us what we really believe. What do we really think about the world? I'm not talking about the words that we use to describe ultimate reality. I'm talking about a relationship to ultimate reality itself. What do we really think about this life? Can you show that slide? Some of you remember this. Kids still play this? Game of life? Okay. In decades now, I think it's been around. And it's a fun game. Now, like many board games, it is all about getting to the end. So there's an obvious metaphor here. Do you believe... Really, probably the most obvious metaphor I've ever used. Do you believe that, duh, life is a game? Or, if you show that next one, is life something different than a game? Is life a garden? A garden which has seasons and requires planting and careful cultivation and then harvest, and then fallowness where nothing at all happens so it can grow again? Is life a game or is life a garden? Unfortunately, so many religious people treat life as a game. Do you win or do you lose? And there's so many secular versions of that. When we confuse what a person earns or what their net worth is with their inherent worth and dignity, then we have turned life into another win-lose proposition. Or is life like this garden, metaphorically, a chance and an invitation for us to grow our soul? That's what a formative faith is all about. Now, saying it's a garden and not a game doesn't make the stakes any less important. There are beneficial ways to garden and healthy ways to garden. And trust me, because I've done them all, really, really cruddy ways to garden. There are ways that you can kill a garden. But ultimately, the land is still there. And if we go back and we do that work again, because it's not win or lose forever, the garden says, go back, learn the good practices, treat the land well, cultivate it well, and then we'll grow. The old faith, the faith that I hope is passing away, said it was all a game. You win, I lose, and others lose. But there is a new theology and a new faith that is afoot. And it's bigger than any doctrine or bigger than any dogma. And it's also still very much a part of our Unitarian Universalist heritage. We hear it in the words of the UU theologians, Rebecca Parker, Rita Nakashima Brock, who study the whole history of Western Christianity and say so much is based in this image of violence, of taming a natural world, because we are, as many people have told us, inherently depraved into original sin but they find there the 5th century and the 10th century and the 15th century and of course in our own age images of life as a garden in which we are all invited to flourish because of the original blessing not the original curse that is within us we hear it in the words and the writings of probably America's most controversial pastor right now Rob Bell who is getting tarred and feathered and also selling a lot of books (laughs) Because he was an evangelical Christian, bold enough and believing enough in his faith and how he understands his faith to say, I don't really buy. I don't really believe that there is this eternal damnation for millions of people within creation simply because they believe differently than me. That's not my understanding of Jesus. And it's the kind of formative faith that we use every week here at Wellsprings. Thich Han. what is he talking about? One conscious step, one conscious breath, the most basic way to have a faith and a practice of formation. And what do we cultivate? It is that heaven on earth that is right here and right now. 
This is what we always aspire to be here at Wellsprings, and I'm feeling a deeper call to it. It's what we talk about our core values and our core beliefs that Sundays are not about getting religion for one day a week. But they are about our beliefs, our values, about motivating, sustaining, and yearning to make stronger that spirituality that we have already and that we yearn to make even deeper in our lives. You can see so much of this, I see so much of this, and I hear the stories from our springboards and our retreats, our small gatherings where people gather to deepen and grow together. So yet, as much as I love Sunday, I want Wellsprings to be more and more and more about the life beyond Sunday. So knowing that this is a planting time of year, and knowing that what I say here now will either go scattered into the wind or will fall into good ground or grow somewhere, who knows? Who knows? I like to cast vision, so I'm going to do some of this right now. What I see for the future of Wellsprings, for us to be the kind of formative faith that encourages people to gather and grow and flourish. I see something like the Wellsprings Center, not the Wellsprings Congregation even, the Wellsprings Center for Spirituality and Practice, ancient practices, modern science, leading to human flourishing. To offer that to the world all days of the week, not just on Sunday, to build on what we have done to this point and ask ourselves, how can we take it even deeper? So I see there in my mind's eye and in even more in my heart's eye. Yes, I see yoga groups and mindfulness groups and meditation groups and prayer groups. And I see recovery groups and I see sustainability group. I see justice seeking groups. I see people who gather each Day, each day at this place, this place where people gather knowing, consciously knowing that what we're doing together is flourishing. And by the way, I said the word groups intentionally because the next message in this message series is that the faith of the future is relational, not individualistic. It is relational. In many ways, my inspiration to have Wellsprings grow into this kind of community comes from some of the times the most oldest kind of communities that there are the monastic tradition that certainly has its abuses and the places where it falls short but if you've ever known anyone in a monastic tradition who lives in one of those kinds of communities you know that at its best it is about people working with people who trust each other it is about people working with trusted mentors and leaders and guides who are there to give off their growth and invite and encourage and equip other people to grow as well it is people investing in other people so that all can grow and all can flourish my vision of what Wellsprings is going, and I say is going to be in the future, there are no easy answers. There is no popcorn, one minute, 90 seconds. When I told someone about this message, they said, ah, that's like that moment in uh, something about Mary when the guy wants, the sort of psycho guy in, in the car wants to uh, take the eight-minute eight abs down to four-minute abs and double your workout and increase your strength. It's not like that. It's not those kinds of easy answers, silly answers. There's no snake oil there. Just the daily good news in this place of who we will be that we believe our greatest destiny in this world is to make good on the investments already placed within us, that this universe has been given into our hands as a gift and we have been given to each other as a gift as well, too. It is to follow through on the words of the great teacher, such a great teacher that he was Dr. King's teacher and favorite theologian himself, Howard Thurman, who said, do not ask, do not ask what the world needs. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask instead what makes you come alive. 
Because in the final result, what the world needs is people who have come alive. I want the future of Wellsprings to be a formative faith in which people are so conscious and joyfully conscious, just like that artist, even if it's at a difficult time in our lives, even if we're born into great pain and great suffering and we're experiencing, even if that's the truth in our life, still we know we are people who are coming alive. People who are coming alive. That's a forming faith. And that is the faith of the future. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O divine likeness whose image we share. And hopefully, hopefully whose image we savor. May we perceive our lives to be that daily invitation to grow, to flourish, to cultivate in ourselves what we also would help to cultivate in all beings. May we know that this ancient tradition, bigger than any single faith, is the heart of faith itself. And let us know and let us practice that it is not someday, someday, some way, somehow, at some point. The invitation is right here and right now. And it is present. And let us be present and be people who come alive. Amen.